In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today is the fifth Sunday of the Holy Great Fast, and as we're accustomed to reading every year, this Sunday is the Sunday of the uh, uh, paralyzed man, Awul Machalla. And you'll find in this passage that there is an overarching theme of bondage and slavery. If you look, for example, when the Lord was describing, when the scripture was describing the porch, it said there many people were there, were sick people. Among them, he said, were the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. The blind, you know, somebody is blind, usually this is like a permanent condition. Right, where somebody is blind and they, you know, stay blind. It's usually you know, something that's permanent. Lame is somebody who's, you know, maimed of some some way. Like if he's crippled or, in you know, some definitions say that somebody who's missing uh, or deprived of a foot, somebody who's lame. Right. So again, this is something that's usually a permanent condition. Uh, and also paralyzed. Somebody once they're paralyzed, they're usually paralyzed, you know, for life. So we see the description of those who are at the pool are people who are in bondage, who have no way out. People who have no cure. Uh, and then the same with the paralyzed man. He was like this for 38 years. Again, even the Lord says that he was in this condition for a long time. So it gives us this image that there's people that are in bondage and held captive to uh, their diseases. In essence, this takes us and makes us feel, okay, this is a hopeless situation. This is like hopeless. They have no one to help him. Even the paralyzed man, when the Lord asked him, do you want to be made well? He says, you know, well, I have no one to push me into the water when the water is stirred. So again, even he he didn't have anybody to help him uh, besides himself. So he couldn't even help himself. Um, Even the the paralytic man himself, he was imprisoned in his own box, the way that he thought. He thought the only way that healing could come was if somebody pushed me into the water. He never considered there can be another source of healing any other way. So he was a prisoner even of his own mind. And being a prisoner to one's or in oneself is something that's very um, it's very hard. If you've ever met someone who had a stroke, a severe stroke, uh, I remember you know many years back I was visiting somebody who had a severe stroke. And I was going to give the person communion. And when I walked into the room, the person looked at me with like this joy on his, fa- on his face. The only thing really that he could move was his facial muscle- muscles and his eyes. And he looked at me and it looked like there was something he wanted to say, but he couldn't say it. And he just started crying. So he saw the joy in his eyes and then the tears in his eyes and he couldn't express himself. He really broke my heart. Like this person really is trapped in his own body. Right? So this is actually the condition of man before Christ. We were trapped in this sin. We were trapped in this bondage. We were held slaves and captives to sin. Then the Lord healed the man and he told him to take up your bed and walk. And then he leaves. And then when he finds the man, he tells him something. He says, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. So the Lord here directly connects the two his paralysis and his condition to the sin that he committed. To tell us, or to tell him that there's a connection, that with sin and bondage and captivity, right? Um, And if you think about any sin, the ultimate is that this sin leads leads you to be captive of some sort, right? 
that is captivating and that it holds you captive and you feel like there's no way out. So there's a relation here between the paralysis and the sin and that a sin held them hostage. And like I said, we're, this is the condition of all humanity. I'll just read a couple of verses to you to you know, uh, show this. In John chapter 8, the Lord said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So who is without sin? No one, right? So we are slaves of sin when we commit sin. Then it continues in uh, Romans chapter 3, St. Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the beginning of the book of Romans, St. Paul wants to establish that both the Jews and the Gentiles, and which all humanity, we all are in need of the Savior. And all have fallen short. The Gentiles, because they didn't know God, nor His promises, and they lived in a, uh, a corrupt life. And the, and the Jews who knew the commandments couldn't keep the commandments. So the same we can be said. You know, sometimes we look at people maybe who are not in the church and we judge them. And we say, oh, look, they're doing so and so. Well, let's consider what St. Paul said to the Romans. Both those who know God and are living in sin are sinners, and those who live in the church are sinners because we know the commandments and we can't keep it. <clears throat> then in Romans 5, St. Paul says, Therefore, just as though one man sin entered uh, the world, who's this one man? The, the man that, uh, by which sin entered into the world. Adam, right? Adam. Therefore, just as though uh, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? So this corrupt nature was something we inherited. You know, from the fall of Adam until now, there's a propensity for humanity to sin. If you leave humanity without law, and without commands, and without guidance, the natural would be for us to live sin. Then on the other side, Christ came to set us free from this bondage. <clears throat> Again, just a couple of verses. When the Lord began His ministry, when He entered into the synagogue for the first time to, pro to begin His ministry, when He went in there, the scripture that He read was from the book of Isaiah. And it says, it's also quoted in Luke chapter 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to set free those who are oppressed. So from the very beginning, he came to proclaim that he came to set us free from this captivity of sin. Also in uh, John chapter uh, 8, the Lord says, uh, it says that um, he said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So knowing him being the truth will make us free from the bondage of sin. So Christ came to offer us freedom from three things. From the corruption of sin, from the power of sin, and from the condemnation of sin. The corruption of sin, the power of sin, and the condemnation of sin. I'll speak very briefly about each of these. <clears throat> As we mentioned, it seems that in the, the story of the paralytic, that his sin was tied to his uh, paralysis, or his paralysis was tied to his son, to his sin. So we can maybe infer that he was not uh, like born this way, right? 
This is something that developed after this, right? So we know then, or we can assume, that he was healthy before this state. And again, this is the condition of man. Before the fall of man, we were healthy, right? Adam and Eve lived in paradise in communion with God, getting all their instruction from Him, loving one another without fear, shame, or guilt, with no problems, right? But when sin entered into the world, then this is where all of the problems uh, began. And we read in the beginning when God created man, that He created him in His image and after His likeness. So this was God's will for us, that we should be in His image and in His likeness. And with sin, that was corrupted, or we can say that was stained, right? Um, so humanity is corrupted and thus leans towards sin. And it wasn't only humanity that was corrupted from the fall of man, but it was all of nature. All of the creation was corrupted. Because God, when He created all of the, the universe and the world, and then He created Adam as the crown of this world, uh, or of His creation, and to be the administrator or the governor of the world. So when man fell and was corrupted, all nature was corrupted as well. This is what St. Paul says in, in Romans 8. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. So there was a participation of creation in the fall of man, and they became, it became corrupted as well. So all of God's creation was distorted. It was corrupted because of sin. So what is the remedy? What is the remedy? If we think of, and I'm sure you've heard this analogy many times before, if we think of an artist, perhaps somebody who you know painted the icons here in this church, if something happened to the icons, if somebody came and you know accidentally bumped into it and created a dent or a scratch or not something, some of us you know we could say, okay, let's just get touch-up paint. But anybody who's ever used touch-up paint, it never turns out to match the rest of whatever you're painting. The correct way to you know fix it is to get the painter who painted it to repair it and repaint it with the same sheen of paint, with the same colors and everything, so it looks perfect, right? And you won't be able to tell that something happened. Actually, something similar happened to one of the, in the area back here, and you try to find where it was that it was repaired, right? But you can't, because the one who painted it was the one who repaired it, right? So the same way, the one who, uh, because we were corrupted, the one who created us is the one who came to fix and redeem, uh, to redeem us. So where do we find this freedom? This freedom from the corruption of sin is found in the restoring of God's image in ourselves. This restoration of God's image in ourselves. This is what St. Paul beautifully describes in 2 Corinthians. He says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, it's this gradual transformation into the image of Christ. Living the godly life, living in the image of Christ day by day, this is how we restore the corrupt, you know, uh, corruption of sin that happened to us, is by striving to live in this image of Christ. It's just like when we see a godly person, somebody who is holy. Many of us, we look maybe as like Baba Krullos or Baba Shnud or any of the people who are godly men, when we visit monasteries and so on, we look at them and we say that we have seen Christ, as if we've seen Christ. 
because we see the image of Christ imprinted on them, right? <clears throat> Being able to be transformed to the image of Christ. And another privilege of being in the image of Christ is the ability to call Him Father, right? Whenever we all stand up to pray, we stand up and we lift our hands and we call Him Father, right? And if you remember um, <clears throat> last week's Gospel when we spoke about the lost son or the prodigal son, the time when he was lost from his father, he wasn't considered as a son. But when he returned, the, son, the father restored him to his sonship once again. Right? So then he was able to call him father and not master. Because that servants will call him master. The children will call him son. So now we're able to call him father, meaning that he, what he's accepted us to be his sons once again through the redemptive work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um... And this was not always the case. If you remember in the story of Esther, the kings at that time were like the untouchables. You know, you couldn't go see the king without getting prior permission. And if you came to the king without permission, and he had this staff, and if he lowered the staff, you were permitted to speak and stay. If he didn't, they would kill you. Right? So if you remember in the story of Esther, she took the risk of going to the king uninvited, and thankfully, he kept he lowered the staff to her and he allowed her to speak. But she was willing to risk her life for this, of course, to save her people. So it wasn't always, you know, the idea of us as humans being accessible to God. But now we're accessible through prayer at any time and anywhere. This was the corruption of sin. What about the power of sin? Of course, it's obvious in the paralytic man, the power of sin was in his physical ailment, in his paralysis, and perhaps in his loneliness. He had no one to push him in. <clears throat> and as I mentioned before, the results of sin or the problem of sin is not only in fear, shame, and guilt. Because we know this is the three things that sin has brought among them, and the things that sin brought to humanity. It brought fear. Right when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid themselves. Right? They hid themselves. Why did they hide themselves? Because they were ashamed. So it brought fear and shame. When we commit sin, do we not get the same sense? If not, we ought to, right? Then we're missing something, right? There's the conscience isn't, being, isn't rebuking us. There should be this sense of fear or this sense of shame. That I've done something wrong. I've broken the commandments. I've disobeyed. I've gone out of line. I've missed the mark, right? There should be this kind of feeling. But this is not the ultimate power of sin, I think one of the ultimate powers of sin is its enslavement, its power to enslave us. And not only to enslave us, but despite the apparent harm that it causes causes us. Sometimes we often we look and we say, okay, I don't understand. When people, for example, drink alcohol or and it causes, you know, people to die in car accidents, or people to do drugs and they make horrible decisions, right? Or and things like this, where there's some kind of sin that's captivating or watching pornography, and so on. And there's some kind of sin that's captivating, and it does harm, but yet we still continue to do it. This is the enslaving power of sin, right? And this is any one of the ultimate powers. And if we look, of, of course, in the story of Samson, right, where Delilah asked him three times, what's your strength? And each time he made up something, she went and told his enemies, and they came and tried to capture him. We look at this and he's like, Anamishfahim, I don't understand. Like anybody in his right mind, after the first time, they'd say, okay, this lady doesn't want anything good from me, let me leave her. 
He does it one, two, and three times. And the fourth time, he tells her the truth. So he trusted the truth, you know, as the Lord said, to, and he, as if he threw it to the little dogs, to the people yani, who weren't valuing the truth. He threw it to her. And she took it and she stabbed him in the back. Right? This is exactly what sin does. It's exactly what sin does. This is the power of sin. So where do we find this freedom? Uh, the freedom from the power of sin. We find the freedom from the power of sin in the discipline of the body. The discipline of the body. Listen to what St. Paul says. He says, Therefore I run thus. And notice here he, he likens this to like an athlete, a person who is training. So make the connection as I'm reading. He says, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So he says he disciplines his body and brings it to subjection. Anybody who competes in athletics on a competitive level, there's an element of practice and discipline and training that goes into it. And if you don't do this, you will never succeed and become you know, a professional athlete. The same thing in the spiritual life. There's a discipline that goes into the spiritual life. And unless we practice these things, we will not uh, grow in our spiritual development. We will stay stagnant. We'll stay just okay, praying our Father, and just going in the car. You know, we just anytime we need help, we say, God help me. And it just becomes very touch and go, very superficial. But if we want to go deeper and get to know God more and to experience real communion with Him while we're here on earth, we need to go a little deeper. We need to begin to discipline the body. This is why the church teaches us of the various spiritual exercises. Um, in Greek, there's a Greek word, it's called eskesis, or eskin, which actually means training. This is where we get the English word asceticism from, right? Asceticism, which is the discipline of the body. It's not the torturing of the body, but it's the discipline of the body. Listen to what St. Paul says in Hebrew. He says, For consider him who endures such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So he said there's, there ought to be some kind of striving. And he said, not yet to bloodshed. And he said, we're not speaking about fighting you know, a physical enemy. We're fighting the passions to bloodshed. So there's a struggle. There's an ascetic struggle that's going on. And then he says to Timothy, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. This exercise is the ascesis, the spiritual exercises, like prayer, fasting, almsgiving, the working of charity, the effort to study and read scripture, um, the matanyas, doing prostrations. Now we're in the time of fasting, and those who can do prostrations ought to be doing some prostrations in the morning with the guidance of your father of confession. Um, <clears throat> and of course, the practice of the remembrance. All of these train us to discipline the body and to not allow the body to be indulged in the passions. This is how God has given us the liberty and the freedom from the power of sin. Lastly is the condemnation of sin. So he came to free us from the condemnation of sin. And if we think again, if we remind us ourselves that the Lord, or that St. Paul told us that all have sinned and fallen short of, uh, of the glory of God. So everyone at the end of the day, is under this condemnation. We are all guilty under this condemnation of sin. And St. Saint John puts it another way. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves 
ourselves and the truth is not in us. So anybody who says, I have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if I come to confession and I come and sit down and say, well, I have nothing to say, then I really haven't examined myself well, at least in the light of Scripture. Because if I sit really and truly examine myself, I will find my sin. Right? But if I say I have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Um, <clears throat> and in the prayers of the church, we say even though his life on earth be a single day, again, even if a person, is their life is one day, they're still sinning because they have that inherited sin. Uh, also, in the book of Isaiah, we, we understand that our unrepented sin uh, is what separates us from God. He says what? But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. So the unrepented sin is like a veil between me and God. And this is where the condemnation lies, is that we are no longer in communion with God, so therefore the condemnation is of death and of sin. So where do we find freedom? The freedom St. Paul tells us in, again, Romans 8, he says, there is therefore no uh, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the freedom from the condemnation of sin is being in Christ, is being in Christ, being a member of the body of Christ. And of course, being a member of the body, number one is that we're sons and daughters to Christ. We're adopted children of God. Again, as St. Paul tells us, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So through adoption, to be as being wedded to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, we become children to God through adoption. Also we become members in Christ through um, the mysteries of the church, through the mysteries of the church, whether it be baptism, the unction, the unction of the sick, the unction of the merun, partaking of the Eucharist. We live in Christ in the life of the church and in the mysteries of the, tr- of the church. And lastly, we live in Christ when we're members in His body, active members in His body. You know, all of us, and if we look in our body, the different organs we have, although we may not realize that each member of the body is important, but each member pray- plays a role in the body. Although we as a whole, we may not realize it. But each member plays a role, right? So being an active member in the church, whether it's through attendance and my own spiritual development, and maybe perhaps one day to serve in some capacity, my brethren, again, we're active members, right? So being an active member in the church is how we live in Christ. So we said that Christ came to free us from the corruption of sin, the power of sin, and the condemnation of sin. And we said we find freedom from the corruption of sin, when we restore to His image once again, and we find freedom from the power of sin when we discipline our body, the ascetic practices, and we find freedom in the, from the condemnation of sin by being in Him and being an active member in His body. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.